listening to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast with Aaron Hale and Mike Ferrier as your hosts. Subscribe to the podcast at CanadianStreetlight.ca. Soli Deo Gloria. So this morning, uh, I don't know that it, it would be uh, a standard Christmas type sermon, but I just felt in light of last week's message, which we talked about um, why Christ came through a virgin birth, why he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and not conceived of men. And we talked about why that was significant. Um, first of all, we saw in Matthew that it was significant because it fulfilled prophecy. But secondly, he also then broke the curse of Adam that had been passed down through the descendants of Adam, Christ being born of the Holy Spirit, then acts now as almost a new Adam. And Paul said in Romans chapter 5 that he, Adam himself was a type of Christ. And so we see Christ coming, born of the Virgin Mary, um, resetting the curse upon mankind and offering now a new lineage, a new heritage in Jesus Christ. So I wanted to actually carry on a little bit with that thought and, and take it to the next step, which Paul takes it to in Romans chapter 6. And, and, and we know that's true, but we, then Paul goes into chapter 6 and he talks about why is that significant in the believer's life. What, what, what's the point of all of this new Adam and breaking the curse of sin upon mankind? How does that look? in the believer's life. And so I want to talk about that a little bit this morning from Romans chapter 6. And I'm going to start back reading at um, verse 20 of chapter 5. I'm just going to read down uh, to verse 14 of chapter 6. So verse 20 of chapter 5 reads, actually I'll go back to 19, sorry, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes in and he asks a question, and the question is, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, therefore, by his baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free. But if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let no sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been 
brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. And I realize this is quite a passage of scripture to to bite off this morning, but I'm just going to try to um, hit the main point, because I feel it's very essential for us to understand what Jesus Christ has done, primarily by coming through the virgin birth, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and then also through his ministry, death, and resurrection, and the implications for that now as Christians and as his followers. So in chapter 6, we see Paul asks a question, and this was common for the rabbis would often ask questions to their students to make them think, and it was almost like a rhetorical question. He wasn't really looking for an answer, because he just goes ahead and says the answer. So it's a way of transferring the, the topic and also making them stop and think. And the question then is, um, if we, he just said, if grace abounds where sin is, then logically we should go on sinning so that grace will abound even more. And he says, is that makes sense, it sounds logical to our human mind, and he goes on, he says, by no means, or some translations might say, God forbid, and um, basically he's saying, that's ridiculous, don't think that, um, that's the wrong type of, of answer, and um, in Wood's uh, word study, he reworded the question, he said, the question might be better stated, shall we continue to habitually sustain the same relationship to the sinful nature that we did before we were saved. A relationship which one is dependent upon the sinful nature and all that as a habit of life. So, one quick side note. When looking at the word sin in this passage, he isn't talking about sin that we do every day, the sinful things that we do. As we saw last week, he's talking about the sinful nature, the corrupt nature of our, of our human being and he's talking about the death of that nature. And the difference is, the sin that we do every day is a byproduct of the nature. So if you kill the nature, then the sin will also naturally begin to disappear because the nature is dead. And that seems like a, uh, you know, kind of unnecessary, but it's important to understand that the sin is simply um, a fruit of the nature. So if you change the nature, the fruit's going to change as well. So Paul's talking about in this passage the sin nature in the Christian's life. It's interesting that his first response is an emotional one. He just says, may it never be. You know, don't think that way. God forbid that you would go on sinning so grace would abound. And his second answer is a theological answer, is a logical answer. He rationally explains it after he says, may it never be. And I thought of that, you know, and it's important, I think, for us to have a balance of both if we simply respond to things out of emotion, that's okay at one level, but don't only respond out of emotion. You need to then understand rationally and even theologically. And um, I think it's sad among the modern church, there's been almost this bashing of theologians that they're just kind of these unnecessary guys who just waste their time studying. We don't really need them. We just need to love Jesus, some might say. Well, that sounds right. But ultimately, um, we look at the New Testament, and Paul spent the majority of his writings talking about theology, talking about teaching. Who are we in Christ? What has Christ done? Where did we come from? That's theology. And so we need both. We need the emotional response, and we need the teaching that Paul gives. And so let us not be afraid of a word like theology, um, which just really means the study of God's word. We do need it, and it is important because it gives us the foundation of um, our emotions. 
and I loved the line from Fireproof, and the man said, don't let your heart lead you, but instead lead your heart. And that's the difference. If we're led by our heart, there's no telling where we're going to go. But if we lead our heart through the sound teaching of God's word, then it will be a good emotional response. And that's kind of all of a side note. So let's look at the passage. Um, What is Paul's second answer to dealing with this sin problem and this sin nature in our our lives? And I thought of a story. um, I've used this before, but not here, so I thought I could use it again. Um, We had an old horse growing up on the farm, and she was there from before I was born, so I always remembered having her around, and her name was Beauty. And uh, she was a very faithful horse, um, but she was getting old, and and, um, I guess the short face, I remember one time my sister was riding her, we were chasing cattle, and uh, she was right in the middle of the field and just suddenly stopped. With no reason. My sister's sitting there kicking this horse, trying to get her to go. She wouldn't go. And my dad came up because he was wondering what in the world's going on. Why can't you make this horse move? And what had happened as the cinch had come undone underneath. And the horse, knowing that it took another step, the saddle was going to probably fall off and dump off my sister. So she just stood there. And my dad came up and did up the cinch, and then she went again. And, and she was just that kind of horse, you know, one that um, you don't come across very often. But like I said, she did get old, and she died. And, um, you know, and there she is. Um, of course, mom thought it's wrong just to leave her in the field. We had to bury her with the tractor and have a, you know, all this stuff. And um, so the point is, if you would have thinking a, a horse that was good at one time, if I was to, after the horse died, take the saddle back from the barn, pack it out, put it on this dead horse, and sit on the horse, um, somebody probably would have called the doctor to come and give me help. You know, they said, this man has serious issues. He's trying to ride a dead horse. That's ridiculous. You can't ride a dead horse. It's dead. Why are you putting a saddle on it? Get off. Let the horse go. You know, it's dead. Um, and you say, that's kind of weird, Aaron. I don't know what you're talking about. But I want you to then, in that mindset, the picture of riding a dead horse, um, listen to what Paul says now in, in verse 3. He said, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in units of life. And he goes on, he says, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall also have a resurrection with his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing and we would no longer be slaves of sin. So the picture is we were once alive in our, in our death, if that makes sense. We were living in our sinful nature. We were living in the curse of Adam. But when Christ saves us, it says the, the sinful nature is put to death. It dies. And, and you then receive, you're not just left, um, in this dead state, you receive a new nature, the nature of Christ himself, the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. So then Paul's picture is how ridiculous it is then to try and go back to that which you died to. Just like riding um, you know, a horse that was one time a good horse, it would be ridiculous to after she died go back and try to ride her again because she's dead. So what are you doing riding a dead horse? And the same is true. What are we doing trying to live in the sin that we are saying we're dead to? It's a paradox, and the two cannot exist together. And um, Paul uses the word baptism and, um, in this passage, and that's actually one that I love to read to display the picture of baptism. He's not saying that baptism um, 
immersion in water is what makes us clean. He's talking about a parallel of being baptized into Christ's death. So, one note about baptism. Um, baptize actually is one of the few words when they translated the Bible, they didn't translate. They just, the word, the word, uh, the Greek word is baptizo, which just means to immerse. So when they translated the Bible, they just said, we don't want to say immerse because there's a large group that is sprinkling and it causes a huge controversy. So we're just going to say baptism. And, and it's called transliterating when they just take the Greek word and they make it an English word with the same meaning. Um, the same is true of phobia. You know, we have arachnophobia and all this. Um, phobia means fear, to fear in Greek. So we've taken the word phobia in English and it means fear, you know, of, of whatever. But it's the same as baptism. So the picture isn't, don't think baptism that we do here when somebody is born again. The picture is immersion. The picture is to be um, brought under with Christ in his death. So it's not um, the act of baptism, but rather the picture of baptism that Christ is talking about, or that Paul is talking about here. And, um, and so the first point is you cannot ride a dead horse. And if a horse is dead, it should not be ridden, right? We understand that. And the same applies in the spiritual sense. And Paul says this many times throughout the New Testament in regards to the death with Christ and the resurrection with Christ. In 1 Peter 2.24 he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And we could go on and list hundreds of texts where Paul talks about the death in uh, Christ and the resurrection in Christ. The two go together and one leads to the other. So we see then that, that death isn't an end in itself. Um, think about baptism. If you were to leave somebody dead in baptism, buried in baptism, you would drown them because they're under the water. So Christ doesn't leave us in this point of just death. He doesn't leave us under the water to drown in our death. He raises us up, gives us a new nature and a, and a new um, being to then begin to operate by. So we see Paul first argues you can't live in something that is dead. Um, you can't ride a dead horse. But secondly, we see Paul showing that when something dies, it loses its power. And so the second point is um, a dead horse is a powerless horse. And I think in your bulletins, I misspelled it. It's supposed to be powerless. You might think it's powerful, so I apologize in your bulletin on the outline. But a dead horse is a powerless horse. And um, Paul says it in, in 5. He says, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection. And he goes on at the end in verse 6 and says, um, We who died should no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you may consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. So not only is a dead horse dead, but it's also powerless. It loses the power that it once had. Um, my brother very much likes pulling with horses. He has some slaves and wagons and hooks them up and pulls things with them. And it takes a lot of power for an animal to pull that kind of thing. And the same picture is true. If you took something and hooked it up to a dead horse, you can't expect it to pull anything. You can't expect it to have the power that it once had 
to accomplish anything. And the same Paul is saying is true of sin. If sin has died with Christ, if we've been buried with Christ, then we do not have to live under the power that sin once had over us. We don't have to submit to it anymore um, like we once did. Salvation is, is not simply a work unto death, but ultimately a work unto life in Christ. The death is a means to an end, namely Christ Jesus himself. In Christ's crucifixion, we know that he received the judgment and the wrath that we were supposed to receive. Not only that, but Paul said he paid the price. The death he died was once for all. It's finished. It's complete. He doesn't have to come back and die again to pay for sins. His sacrifice was an eternal sacrifice, once and for all, completing um, the, the power of sin, taking the power of sin away and putting it to death. Paul said he was crucified in this passage, which is past tense, that we were crucified with Christ. And um, that may not seem like a very important thing, but I've heard Henry Blackaby preach about the crucifixion of Christ. And as a believer, do we have a sense that we too were crucified with Christ on the cross? And um, on this point, we start, to, we start to step from the finite understanding into the infinite understanding. And, and we can't step into the infinite because we can't understand. But I would say that we know that God is not bound by time like we are. He is outside of time. We can't even understand that. But we know that it's true because he was there before there was time, before the foundations of the earth. And so in the heart and mind of God, that's how finished this work is in Christ Jesus, that we have died with him. Um, first, 2 Timothy 1.9 says, Before the foundations of the earth, you have died with Christ. And the same is true in Ephesians chapter 1, that it says that he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the earth. And so there's a sense in which this isn't something that just we do on our own strength, but it's something that has been done in Christ on the cross, that somehow, in a way that I can't understand fully, he took the sins of Aaron Hale on the cross. He took the sins of Dave Robinson, of Bernie Clausen, we could go on and on. So those who are Christians, he paid that price completely on the cross. And um, it's hard for us to grasp. How could he uh, pay for us in Christ before the foundations of the world, an eternal, finished work, now that we're living out in our lives? And um, like I said, we, we start to step into the, the infinite, and our minds just kind of cut off at that point. But let us seek to understand that. Um, the reason is because when we understand that, we then begin to get a sense for how finished the work is, for how dead our sinful nature is. It isn't as though our sinful nature can be raised up again from day to day and kind of takes us back and we go back and forth. It's a finished work. It's put to death. We were crucified with Christ. And, and we have to understand that so that we begin to realize the victory that we've been given in Christ Jesus. Even before uh, we were born, this has been given to us on the cross of Christ. And Christ will not have to die again, as we already talked about as well. So we know that a dead horse um, is powerless. The power is gone because of the work of Christ. Our sin is laid to rest. 
but we go on to see Paul talks about, so what's the point? Why, why is this important? And um, of course with the writings of Paul, his, his writing is, he crams so much into there, uh, we have to kind of skip over some of it this morning, we can't cover all the points. But the third point, beginning at verse 12, we begin to see why this is important. How does this affect us from day to day, understanding what Christ has done um, on the cross? And he goes on in verse 12, he says, Let then sin not reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteous, unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. And we then see, how do we apply this to our lives? How do we make this look differently in our lives? Um, Does it really give us freedom over addictions? Does it really give us freedom over sinful habits that we find ourselves trapped into? Does it really help us to then begin to experience the victory that we've been given in Christ Jesus? And... Um, and that's what Paul goes on to say. And the first thing he says in verse 12 is don't, don't let the sin reign in your mortal bodies to obey your passions. So it isn't something that we do conscious, it isn't something we do in our own strength, but rather it's something that as we understand, okay, my sin is put to death in Christ Jesus, my sinful nature, that to which I was once enslaved, that to which I obeyed because it was who I was, was put to death, buried with Christ, and now I've been given a new nature in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And so we then begin to understand, so that the battle then isn't us against our sin. Um, if we see our Christian walk as us having to overcome our sin from day to day, then you are already defeated where you stand. You are already going to experience failure because that's not it. And there's no victory in us trying to defeat our sin. There's victory in understanding Christ has defeated our sin, it's finished, and what we do now is claim the victory, live in the victory, um, know that it's dead, and don't go there anymore, don't ride a dead horse anymore, know that it's dead, and then you'll begin to experience the power of Christ's finished work and his new nature working within you and working through you. So Paul just says, don't present yourself to sin. And he goes on in verse 13 and says, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Um, So he says not to do, and then he goes on in in the positive, and he says, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So we have two negatives, don't let sin reign, and don't present yourself to sin anymore. In the positive, he says, Present yourself to God now and use your bodies for God as instruments. Um, this, the word for instruments could also say tools, if you like you know, tools more than instruments, or weapons. Present them to God as weapons, um, no longer to sin. If you think of an example of an instrument um, to illustrate this, once dead in our trespasses, now alive in Christ, you think of your life as, say, a musical instrument, a harp, or maybe a guitar. And at one time, before Christ, Paul said in Ephesians 2, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, sin 
was what played your instrument. Sin is what played its song upon your life as an instrument. But then when Christ came, when you were saved by Jesus Christ, sin is taken away. It has no right to play that instrument anymore. And Christ then says, now I can play my life-giving song upon you. Now I can use you as my instrument, no longer an instrument of death. And so it's like our song, our life becomes a song unto Christ and not a song unto our sin. Or maybe you think of the example of a tool, offering your life as a tool to Jesus Christ. Um, you know, a hammer would be probably the most natural tool. And a tool is only as good as the one who yields it. And, you know, we can, we can call, I can call myself a carpenter and, because I hold a hammer, but if I don't know how to use a hammer, if I use it wrongly, um, the hammer is just subject to that who is holding it. Do you understand? Whoever's holding the hammer is what defines how the hammer is used. So at one time, if our life is like a hammer, if our body is like a hammer in the hands of God, at one time, the sinful nature held this hammer and used it for destruction. They used it to tear down. Our sinful nature used it to destroy those who were close to us, to destroy our families. But now Christ has come. He has saved us, put that to death, ripped the hammer out of the hands of sin and out of the devil himself, And he says, now I can use this hammer for my glory. This is now my instrument of righteousness. And the great carpenter takes the hammer now and uses it to build his kingdom, to build up, to to restore instead of tear down. And that's the picture Paul is using. Um, Or thirdly, if you think of a weapon, if our life is like a weapon, and uh, it's like a two-handed sword, once it was held by the treacherous hand of our sin nature, and ultimately of Satan himself. And it was used to his pleasure, to his glory, to the destruction of others. It was used to, to cut down people. It was used to, um, to humiliate them with the sword of our life. But Christ comes, puts it to death on the cross of Calvary, before the foundations of the earth, Paul says. And as we live in that, as we realize that, and by faith believe it, um, he takes the sword from the hand of our enemy, and he now begins to use it to to tear down strongholds. He begins to use it to cut the bondage that entangles those around us, that this life is like a sword that now the warrior Jesus Christ can use for his kingdom and his uh, glory in this world. So think of it that way. Present yourself to God as instruments of righteousness, no longer to sin, which we did at one time, for the pleasure of, of Satan himself. And just in closing, um, how does this work out? You know, say, say uh, there's, a, there's a, a sinful habit that you're really struggling with and, and you've been trying to get victory over it for a long time. You know, it, it could be anything. It could be addictive habits. It could be uh, pornography. It could be, um, un, like, getting too emotionally involved in relationships outside of your marriage. It could be any number of things that we give ourselves over to. So the question is, how does this give me victory in those kind of situations? How does this give me victory over my anger? How does this give me victory over my lust? And uh, a few quick illustrations, one from my own life, um, and I'm not going to stand here and say I've never fell flat on my face, I've never given in to my sinful nature. I have many times, and I do every day. But there is victory. And I remember one time we were working in a house in Grand Prairie. And uh, it was actually, I think, my first couple of weeks 
in, in the trade. And so, of course, as a new guy, you get kind of the menial jobs that are pretty hard to mess up. So my job was to go around with this vacuum cleaner and vacuum all the little uh, the carpet clippings. When they put the carpets in, they clip all the edges, and there's all these little pieces of carpet everywhere. So I was going around vacuuming all this stuff up with a big shop vac. And, uh, of course, as a young man and single at the time, I had a constant battle against lust. And I had to constantly guard my eyes. Um, and, I, and as I said, I struggled and I fell many times. And I remember I was going into this one room and, and the man bought the house already. So we had started moving stuff into this house and I was vacuuming around. And, and there was this box of magazines on the floor. And, and I was just vacuuming. I kind of, the cover one caught my eye and I realized what this was. This was a box of pornography. And everybody else, there was one other guy in the house working upstairs. And, um, and he wasn't going to come down probably because he was trying to install this bathroom hardware and all this. So I knew there was no one else around probably for a good 20 minutes. And, and I knew what that was. And I knew all I could do, I could just sit down and, and look through a few if I wanted and nobody would probably ever know. So that's the situation. And it could be worked out in many different ways. It worked out, you know, you're working and, and you're about to get angry and, and you sense yourself being angry. You know, you could apply it in many different ways. But this is the situation. And I remember stopping and I realized, okay, I have a decision to make right now, and, and I just begin to, to understand these things. And I remember thinking, I can't do this. I can't overcome this on my own strength. I can't. I'll fall every time. And so I remember praying, Lord, I know that you have paid the price for my sin. You have conquered this. I don't have to go there anymore because of what Christ has done in my life. And a strength came over me that I, I would not normally have. And I walked out, I closed the door, and I never went back into that room until we were out of that house because I knew it was there. And that's the difference because, you see, if it's just me against this box of pornography, then I'm going to fall on my face because I can't do it. I'll give in to it. But if it's the power and the finished work of Jesus Christ working in me, the new nature that he's given me, then there is power there. There is a new power. There is victory that you've never experienced before because it's his victory. It's his finished work, not Aaron Hale, Aaron Hale's finished work. And, um, of course, we know this isn't, you know, we never struggle again, but as you begin to understand this, what Christ has done to the sinful nature, and when we understand that, we begin then to live um, in the victory that he has given. And it's a, it's a challenge, it's a journey. We fall, we get up, we fall, we think we've overcome one area, and we realize there's another area that is even deeper, rooted into our heart, but the victory is there. And so I pray that we would not ride the dead horse of our sin nature, that we would not give it power that it no longer has, but that we would, with Christ, mount up on the new horse that he has given and ride, as it says in Revelation, the the picture of the Redeemer coming on a white horse. And that's the victory. That's the power that we've been given in Jesus Christ. And so... Let us stand in it. Let us claim it when we're faced with those decisions of temptation. Let us begin to experience the victory of Christ. Jim Elliott said, um, a very famous saying, he said, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And it might feel like a death when we begin to let go of our sinful nature, we begin to lay it down and say it's dead. But ultimately, it's not a loss at all, is it? It is truly gaining life itself in Jesus Christ. And so, I pray that encourages you this morning. I realize it's not a standard Christmas service message, 
but it is ultimately the very heart of Christmas, I feel, that we ought to be living out every day. Jesus Christ comes, breaking the curse upon mankind, offering us victory and ultimately eternal life in him. So if you'll just stand with me and we will have a closing word of prayer and then we'll just dismiss with a song. And um, Thank you for tuning in to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or perhaps a podcast suggestion or topic, visit us online at canadianstreetlight.ca. Soli Deo Gloria.